Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. I'm your host, David Wu, and in today's episode, I interview Dr. Faisal Mahmoud, who is an assistant professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School and computational pathology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Mahmoud recently published an exciting new paper in Nature this year, where him and his team built a deep learning model to accurately identify tumors of unknown origin on pathological slides. Pathology is one of the central pillars of medicine, and here we really dive deep into how machine learning is pushing the boundaries of the field and our abilities to diagnose and recognize tumors. I was a little worried that these algorithms would one day take my job as a budding clinician, but Dr. Mahmoud reassured me that they would augment and amplify rather than replace me. So thank you, Dr. Mahmoud. Anyways, I hope you all enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Uh, today, my guest is Dr. Faisal Mahmoud. He is an assistant professor of pathology at Harvard Medical School and the Division of Computational Pathology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. So hi, Dr. Mahmoud. Um, I was wondering if you know we could start off the show and you could tell us a bit about your path and how you came to focus on deep learning and medical image analysis. Thanks, David. Uh, and thank you so much for inviting me to speak. Um, so uh, my background is in computer science and, and electrical engineering. I did a PhD in, in structural biology where uh, we used to take a lot of electron microscopy images and try to reconstruct them in, uh, in 3D to uh, elucidate the structure of, of uh, various macromolecules. And after that, I did a postdoc at Johns Hopkins where I worked on quite a lot on, on medical images and um, trying to uh, do sort of automated deep learning based diagnosis on, on endoscopy endoscopy images and later on pathology images. So that's how I got sort of started in the area. Um, and then I was just fascinated by computational pathology and the opportunity in, in computational pathology because the, the, the amount of diagnostic and prognostic problems that exist in pathology is just enormous. Every, every disease model, almost every disease model is affected by uh, by, by pathology and the the, the process of, of diagnosis and prognosis is still inherently subjective and has a lot of intra and intra observer variability and there's a huge opportunity for computational approaches to improve the diagnosis build better better grading systems uh, discover new subtypes and and whatnot so so that's how I, I got very interested in computational pathology yeah, I was wondering um, if we could kind of back, back up for a second, if you could just give us in your own definition, uh, how would you describe or define computational pathology? So, so computational pathology is, is this very new field of, um, of, of uh, I, you, you can subcategorize it as being, being a field of computational biology or, or, or a subcategory of machine learning and medicine in, in general, where you can analyze pathology images, pathology specimens that are, that are typically analyzed by, by, by humans subjectively in sort of an automated manner. It can, can be automated analysis, screening tools, which would screen out particular patient cases, or it could also be assistive uh, tools that would assist pathologists in making their determinations. So that's one arm of, of, of computational pathology. The other arm is, uh, is related to discovery. So uh, throughout the history of medicine or throughout the history of pathology, the way new disease models, new subtypes, subcategories of patients have been 
have been discovered is that someone goes in and looks at large amounts of data and over time they figure out that patients who have a particular kind of a morphology associate with a certain kind of an outcome and if given treatment A, they, they respond, if given treatment B, they might not respond. So a lot of uh, this, this process happens over, over a very long time. So computational pathology offers the opportunity to automate a lot of that and use large cohorts of patients and discover, discover common features or, or, or common morphologic features across these, uh, across these patients on its, uh, on its own. You know, I've noticed in my medical education, we've been learning, you know, a lot of pathology, and I feel like there's a very rich historical tradition to pathology. Mm -hmm. And of the different, you know, sub, uh, subspecialties of medicine, I feel like pathologists, there's a, I'll give an example, you know, I, I think um, there's a lot of named, a lot of like eponymous uh, named things in pathology. Um, like, you know, for you have Schiller Duvall bodies, you have like Camille Wilson nodules, uh, or, you know, I feel like there's always a story behind it too and how like they name these things. And um, I, I'm curious, like, do you think computational pathology is, is it like in a weird way continuing this tradition? Um, I, I don't know, like, I guess, how would you, I, I mean, like what got you interested in pathology? So uh, pathology really affects everything in, everything in medicine, right? So uh, a, a lot of people, when they talk about computational pathology, they're uh, a lot of machine learning scientists in particular, their, their thinking is limited to, to cancer, but that's not really the case. Cancer is just, um, it, it, it amounts to a lot of cases in the pathology department, but that's, uh, that's just one aspect of, 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 of pathology. There's, there's this whole area of, of cardiac pathology or renal pathology, every organ in the, in the body, essentially, every, every disease model um, is somehow affected by pathology. This is why you see so many, so many, so many diseases that were named after, after pathologists who, who discovered them. So as I, as I sort of mentioned earlier that the discovery of a lot of these diseases happened over, over time. Um, and as more and more um, patients come in with similar, similar diseases, eventually, eventually the disease would, would get a name and eventually would figure out what the prognosis for those diseases is that's how different grades come into play, that what the grade of the disease is, there are subtypes, what the subtype of the, of the disease is. So all of these things have happened over, uh, over time by looking at very, very large cohorts of, of, uh, of patients. And, and what computational pathology has, besides other things, what, what, what the, the benefit of computational pathology is to really accelerate that process, tap into a lot of the historical um, repositories and see if we can discover new subtypes that were previously missed that might not be as evident to, to humans. And then there's also this entire new field of, of discovering non-human identifiable or predicting non-human identifiable phenotypes from these pathology images. So these images have a wealth of information that is beyond, uh, beyond, beyond like obvious comprehension by, uh, by, by humans. Um, and we've seen uh, that the, these models, AI models, have the ability to predict mutations and, and other things that are not typically identified by, by human experts. Yeah, that reminds me of how, um, I guess, like given a, a picture of like a, of a retinal scan or something, like it can predict 
whether it's a male or female, you know, you know, there's like so many examples of that, of things that trained uh, pathologists can't see, but, you know, the uh, algorithms can kind of pick it up very, very well. Um, so so the, the algorithms um, are use morphologic features or they use uh, fe features that correlate with the, with the outcome that, that, that is used to, used to train them. So this is, this is what sort of you're, you're, you're referring to. We have seen a number of these uh, studies where you can predict cardiac risk assessment anemia assessment from uh, from retinal images. I think a number of these articles are published in Nature Biomedical Engineering recently over the past uh, two years or, or, or so. But also in the pathology domain, we've seen that you can predict mutations from histology images, something that would typically require NGS sequencing, next generation sequencing, and might not be available in lower source settings. You can use conventional histology and predict, predict these um, uh, the, uh, these mutations that are really uh, important in guiding modern targeted targeted therapy directly from uh, from histology uh, images. So this is a whole new area of, uh, of, of of trying to predict non-human identifiable phenotypes, um, and I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface of what we what we can do. So I, I think the future is is heading towards. Uh, making very informed predictions of response to treatment, immunotherapy, for example, uh, only a fraction of patients respond. And from initial biopsies, if we can make predictions of which which patient is more likely to respond to what kind of drug, that uh, has has a, has a lot of value. Yeah. I think that's so cool, but also almost a little terrifying. You know, it's terrifying to think that there's things in these pathology slides that we can't see at all, and you know that these they're non-human identifiable, right? So, you know, we're kind of almost relying on the, the, you know, algorithms or models to see things that our own eyes can't see. There's, there's beauty to it too, but it's, it's I, quite I, scary. Yeah, I, I completely uh, agree with that. So I, I think that uh, a lot of the modern algorithms, they are becoming more and more interpretable and you would be able to go back and look at what morphologic features or what, what, information in the image was important in making these uh, outcome or making these classification determinations. And you can use that information as, uh, um, um, as, as biomarkers, right? So you can use that information to see what was used to make these predictions and whether, uh, whether those new morphologic features associate with certain kinds of, of biomarkers. And, and, and you'll, you'll see that um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the, 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 the disease subtypes, grades, and uh, features, human identifiable features that we have identified over the years are inherently not very complex. A human yeah. can memorize them, look at them, but there can be a lot of confounding features if, if X, then Y, and all, all, all of these things that uh, an, an algorithm or a model that's trained on these images can do, but we are not able to uh, to identify them. So it is possible that the algorithm is initially used to identify these features. Then we go back and look at what features were important in making these determinations, and then you can train a human to to mm. identify features too. Right? I'm very glad you bring that up because I feel like in general a lot of these deep learning algorithms they're not very explainable, especially the ones that perform really well. And I think that's very cool that, you know, this model that you describe it is able to uh, 
you know, provide us like insight into actually how, how we make this grading. And uh, maybe this could be a good transition, a good segue for us to talk about your new paper that recently came out in Nature. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Um, and it <laughs> yeah. has to do with, uh, you know, identifying tumors of unknown origin, right? Yeah. So uh, the, the recent article in, in Nature is, uh, is about identifying origins for uh, metastatic cancers and for complicated metastatic cancers, which would typically require a large number of ancillary tests. Um, so just to back up a little bit and give a little bit more of a background to, to people who are listening today, the, um, when cancer metastasizes and goes from one region to the other, it would often become unclear where it, it sort of originated. And at, at first presentation, when, um, when the when the patient would come in with some kind of an indication that this is a tumor, it could be following radiology or, or other kinds of things. Um, at first presentation, it would be very unclear whether this, uh, this is a primary cancer or a metastatic cancer, and if it is metastatic, where it originated. Now, the importance of identifying the primary, primary tumor and where it originated is, is, uh, is sort of profound because because all the modern therapies um, are based off of the primary primary tumor. So uh, typically these patients uh, would undergo extensive workups and these could include, if, you, if there's an initial biopsy, the, the biopsy would, would then go through a number of uh, ancillary tests like immunohistochemistry and, uh, and other tests to, to try to identify where the primary is. And this can often be followed up with more imaging, additional biopsies, other kinds of clinical tests, um, and it takes take and it can take a while to identify where the where the origin is. And during that time, the patient can't be treated. The other thing is that if the if the primary is not identified, uh, these patients are also not eligible for a lot of the clinical trials, which require the primary mm -hmm. to be identified because the, the treatments are specific to the primary. So the it's, it's very important to identify the primary and, and the, the typical workflow can be slow. So what we did was that we trained a deep model for 18 different primary origins uh, using a lot of patient cases. We used histology slides uh, um, and given a, given a new histology slide, we can make a prediction for where the, uh, where the origin is uh, as well as whether the, the, the case is primary or metastatic. Um, and we get top three or top five origins. So the model will tell, it, will tell us what the, what the most likely origins are. And uh, that basically has two kinds of uh, uses, right? The first use is that we can, in, in uh, resource-rich settings, like here in the US, where we have a lot of ancillary tests and pathology expertise readily available, we can use that information to guide next steps. We can use it to... Um, order IHC tests in a more informed way, or um, consider particular hypotheses for for where the origin is that might that we might not have considered earlier. Um, and in resource constrained settings, we can use this to assign a primary differential. Mm. IHC, you said it was immunohistochemistry, right? right. Okay. Okay. Um, so I, the, I like the acronym that you came up for the model, TOAD. Um, <laughs> the, I believe it was tumor, uh, or, sorry, what, what, tumor origin assessment via deep learning. Yeah. 
And um, I, I think it's it's awesome what you know what you've accomplished with this paper to just kind of give some <laughs> context. I'm currently preparing for my board exams, and you know sometimes what we have to do is like oh identify where where this tumor is from. You know, like it'll show us a slide of like a uh, clear cell carcinoma or something in the in the kidneys. And uh, you know, I wish I could have this model for my exam. You know, like to use it because it would be very handy. Um, I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure that by the time you're you're practicing and eventually to become a, become a pathologist, you would have assistive tools available that can that can help you with a lot of these things. I I, I think that the um, the true value on in these uh, in these algorithms is is that it, they they can be fabulous assistive tools, right? They mm -hmm. they can help pathologists do their job much faster in a much more accurate um, accurate way. Um, there are a lot of efforts towards clinical trials and trying to translate these models uh, and to, to truly sort of study and analyze whether these models can improve the, the, the quality of the diagnosis as well as the time that it takes to make these diagnoses. Mm. How would you describe the structure of the model toad of toad to a medical student or, or how you came to build this model? Right. So the, the whole premise of, of deep learning and modern AI models in gen, general is that they rely heavily on historical data. So mm -hmm. you, you use patients uh, that have historically gone through the diagnostic process as complex as it may be to train the model so that future patients can, uh, can, can be sort of assessed based off of that history. And that, that sort, of sort, uh, sort of speaks to uh, humans as well as we, as we analyze more and more cases or, or go through something over and over again, we become more of an expert to, in, in analyzing these complicated, complicated yeah. things. So, so uh, the whole premise of deep learning is sort of based off of historical data. And that's what we, that's what we did. We, we took a lot of historical cases. A large majority of those were, were uh, from public repositories like the TCGA and, the, um, and, and CPTAC that are made available by the NIH. We, we also used quite a lot of data uh, that came uh, from, from in-house archives here at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and use all of that data to train a model. And this model was weekly supervised, which means that we did not require any, any pixel level annotations. Uh, so we could use what was available for clinical purposes, full slide images and slide level labels to, to train this model and to use something uh, called attention, which tries to figure out or learn as the model trains what the most important region is within these whole slide, uh, whole slide images. And we trained the model for two tasks simultaneously. The first task was to predict whether this case is, is a primary tumor or a metastatic tumor, or, uh, and, and then if it's metastatic tumor, uh, make a prediction for where, where the origin is and give, give us top three or top five predictions of most likely. Uh, origin that are ranked in the order of preference by by the model. And I saw in the paper um, it was described as a, a multiple instance learning algorithm. It, it, yeah. How would how would you describe that in layman terms? So a, a multiple instance learning algorithm is uh, it basically means that the there are many different instances, but there's only one label that's available for for all of those uh, instances. So. Uh, to explain it in a little bit more detail, I, I'll, I'll just back up a little bit and, and talk a little bit more about pathology data. So, so pathology data is inherently 
histology slides, the most common way is to have HME histology mm -hmm. slides. These slides, once digitized, they, they hey, glass slides are small, but once they're digitized at 20x or effective 200x magnification, they can be enormously large. They can be, each one of these slides can be 100,000, 100,000 pixels or even more. Wow. So it's like a satellite image. It's it's enormous, right? So, mm -hmm. so um, there, there are a couple of ways that we can use deep learning to uh, make predictions on these whole slide images. One most common approach is to, uh, is to annotate the interesting region or the tumor region and do that for a lot of cases. And you can use those to, to train your model. However, that was not very feasible for the problem that we were trying to target here for origin prediction, where we wanted to use tens of thousands of cases. And yeah. it was not very really feasible to get, uh, get annotations for these cases. We used weekly supervised learning, which means that we used whole slide images, these very large images and corresponding slide level labels. Now, we can't use a 100,000 by 100,000 uh, uh, image in a, in a deep uh, deep model. So we use, that's why we use multiple instance learning because we can split these images into smaller smaller images or tiles. And mm. each of the tiles then becomes an instance and the entire slide becomes a bag. So essentially each mm. slide is represented as a bag of instances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We use that to, uh, to train the model. It's a common, uh, common way of training these um, these models are uh, very commonly used for pathology. Uh, we have developed uh, another another method that's uh, that's publicly available, and people can use um, use that method to train their computation pathology algorithms. I remember earlier you were talking about how um, you know with these models we can, given their explainability, we can see things that we uh, or I guess learn about diagnosis things that we didn't see before. I was, I'm curious in this process of building Toad, uh, did you come across any insights into, you know, histology or pathology of just uh, of tumor, or identifying tumors that we hadn't known prior? So, so we, uh, we did not analyze it sort of that way. I think, I think to do that kind of an analysis, we need a lot more analysis into the outcomes. Uh, mm. In this case, we evaluated it against assessments that had been made for, for patients already based off of existing human work. Um, but that's sort of a very good next step where uh, we can use the predictions that are being made by, made by Toad and eventually see uh, that when you use those predictions, do, uh, do those patients actually have better prognosis over time? So that's something mm. that we're looking at and we have plans to do a prospective study as well as plan to do a clinical trial where we can assess the efficacy of Toad and then we can go back oh, wow. to some of those uh, morphologic features. A clinical trial, that, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's sort of the next step. So we're working towards that. So, so it would be implemented, you know, at major hospitals? And... Yeah, that's, uh, that's where we want to, want to get to. But before we, we go there, we might do a smaller uh, perspective study, mm -hmm. and then uh, following that, we would like to like to do a trial. Wow, uh, I want to I want to get to that, but first, I kind of want to ask a bit more about just questions about the toad and kind of the data in it. Mm -hmm. I saw that um, for the data, you guys mainly use the H and E slide, and mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, I saw that uh, gender was a parameter. Right. Um, 
I was wondering if you could talk more about that. Like, because right. I, I don't think much else was given, right? Besides the yeah, HNE so, slide and gender. So, so, so the only two inputs in the in the model is uh, uh, is the histology slide, the HNE slide, and and the gender. So we experimented with a lot of other things, but we found these two to be the most useful. Uh, and the the reason we incorporated gender is because certain tumors are just gender specific, and this is information mm. that we have corresponding every every patient. And we saw that the performance of, uh, of, of, of on, on metastatic tumors did improve when we incorporated gender. The other variable that we incorporated was, uh, and we experimented with it, it was not part of the final model, but was the biopsy site. So mm -hmm. uh, the certain tumors have a tendency to uh, metastasize to certain regions. Yeah. So intuitively, you would think that adding the biopsy site would improve the model. However, we found that that was not the case here because we, we also used primary cases. We used both metastatic and primary cases to train the model. If we incorporated the, the biopsy site, the, the model was not able to learn from primary primary cases because the biopsy site is sort of redundant with the, with the, with the primary tumor. So it found a shortcut, shortcut um, and the biopsy site being as an input and being same as the as the origin for 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 primary tumors, mm -hmm. um, so but in in the study we have, we have some of this analysis um, where we incorporated an additional information and then uh, sort of uh, did, did did sort of a um, deeper analysis into what's the effect of uh, incorporating these covariates. Yeah, I might have missed this when I read the paper, but did you guys um, in, experiment with like in, including race? No, we, we did not have enough race stratified cases to, to, to study that, but there are ongoing efforts in my group to, to study this for, for disease models for which we do have enough, enough cases available, such as for breast, can breast cancer subtyping, for non-small cell lung cancer subtyping. Um, and we, we are finding that there are uh, disparities and we're trying to see where do these disparities sort of lie uh, within the within the model, um, this is a, a sort of a very very exciting and a hot area to make mm. the, make these AI models more equitable. Yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, we're we're definitely exploring it. Yeah. So you said the the data set. I, I was actually going to ask you about um, the data set that you trained on. Like, would you have would you consider it demographically diverse? So it's representative of the population. Um, I, I, I think that the, the data that comes from the TCGA and CPTAC, the large consortium made available by, uh, by the NIH, it's, it's quite representative of the, of the population. Um, and the data, in-house data is representative of the population here, here in the Boston area. Um, mm -hmm. However, uh, they are sort of heavily skewed. They, uh, they're not uh, balanced in terms of race. Mm. Uh, I, I think to build more equitable uh, models, we need to uh, have data sets that are more balanced by, by race, but also come up with more uh, sophisticated algorithms and computational methods that would take that into account when um, sort of race balanced data sets are not available. Mm. Um, I, I guess uh, going back to the, I'm, I wanna hear more about, you know, plans for clinical trials and. That kind of stuff. I'm I'm curious, like, yeah, like, what do you think are the next steps for this project? Right. So there there are a number of different 
uh, next steps that we are pursuing. So the first one is to to uh, do this multimodal. So we can we we are planning on incorporating uh, genomic information uh, to the extent that is available for these patients. And there have been a number of studies which have used uh, NGS data to uh, make uh, origin predictions. Um, the benefit of using HME or just HME is that we can um, we can make these assessments in lower source settings and early on before genomic testing is sort of conducted for these patients. Mm -hmm. um, and the um, so, sort of one one direction we have is that we how can we incorporate histology and genomics and see if the predictions would improve and to what extent do they do they improve and what what's the benefit of having these additional modalities in there. We're also looking into incorporating other kinds of data, such as radiology and electronic mm -hmm. records, and how does that sort of uh, multimodal or orthogonal data streams affect affect um, the, these predictions. Um, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is to try to deploy this. Um, our initial plans are to first deploy this internally as a as a uh, as a research tool for, for secondary analysis. So patients who have, have already gone through the diagnostic process, we, we plan on, uh, on, on testing all metastatic cases that come through our department through, through the model. Um, and then following that, we'll, we'll try to do, do things sort of a little bit more prospectively and, and, uh, and having it act as an, as an assistive tool. And then after that, we'll think about uh, doing a trial. But we are in discussion with, uh, with a lot of a lot of pathologists, multiple institutions, and they're looking into how, what the best way is to sort of deploy this. Do you think within the next 10 to 20, or within our, you know, within our lifetimes, we'll see that this will be, you know, like when someone comes in for a, you know, tumor and then they get a biopsy, is it, it'll be like, do you think it'd be run through the, through toad or a, a similar model first and then given to the pathologist? Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure, I'm, I'm, I'm very convinced that that would happen. Um, I think TOAD is, is sort of a, really a proof of concept and is just scraping the surface of what we can do in terms of uh, AI-assisted origin prediction or AI mm -hmm. assessment of, of, of metastatic patients. I, th I think that um, the models will become much more robust as more and more data is digitized and scanned and yeah. we'll, we'll eventually train these models on millions of cases from around the world and I know there are a lot of efforts, large consortia-based efforts, to pool a lot of pathology slides together, pathology patient cases from, uh, from 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 multiple countries, multiple institutions together, to, um, to 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 begin to train these models that would be representative of uh, of, of really all all patients, and that way we'll be able to study what the differences are in patient populations as well as what are what are the similarities and and harness these uh, large repositories to train models that are uh, that are very very that have that have, that have very high efficacy and when we get to that point I, I'm, I'm sure that every patient that comes through um, um, whether it's our healthcare system or or um, or internationally they they would go through this uh, this process yeah mm. i really liked what you said about the orthogonal data sets the multimodal data, because I'm just imagining, you know, if, if you got this histology slide, you got the CT scan, you have the genetic, the genomic data, there, there's, uh, you know, I'm almost thinking like, wow, like that, what else could we even look at? You know, because that's, that's like everything, you know, we're throwing the kitchen sink at this cancer, right? Yeah. So I, I, I think that 
we have all of these data streams, but they're not really intertwined. So they're mm. um, the, the, the link between these uh, data sets is still sort of established by uh, a human. So you can have CT data uh, and you can have pathology data and uh, genomics and all of these. And, and a human would go in and look at all of the, all of this information and distill out what the best course of action is um, for uh, for the patient. And as we've seen that these uh, data sets, these have a wealth of information that are not human identifiable. Mm, mm. And how well can you recognize those patterns? Um, and I, I, I think that there is a huge opportunity to use multimodal data sets and link them with outcome, link them with, uh, associate them with um, with, with response and, and resistance to, to treatment, which patients are more likely to respond. And then there's also a huge uh, uh, opportunity for, for discovery that besides just making these predictions, you can also discover new uh, multimodal markers as well. Mm. That makes me, uh, you, you know, I feel like traditionally the role of the clinician is to kind of unify these different data streams and then you come up with a diagnosis and then you give a, you know, prescribe a treatment. And I feel like it almost seems like this, uh, it, it seems almost like a little bit of a holy grail of AI and medicine is to, you know, kind of come up with this like mega algorithm that can unify all these data streams and like provide the best care possible. Do, do you think that one day that, you know, we, we might be replaced uh, as physicians? Uh, no, I, I, I don't think that any of these uh, technologies are, uh, are meant to replace, uh, replace clinicians. I, th I think these are meant to be assistive tools. So um, I, I, I think pathologists would be able to do their job in a much more efficient way if they don't have to look at these basic mm. they, they would have much more time for research. They would have much more time to focus on cases that do need uh, a lot more attention, more complicated cases. And the same is true for, for clinicians who are, who are trying to fuse these orthogonal data streams um, and trying to make uh, most informed assessments. If, if before they start looking at these cases, some of these assessments are made on their own and they're made in a much more holistic manner. Um, they can make much more informed decisions um, and uh, sort of avoid having to rely on uh, on, on assessments that might come from other people because mm. uh, they're, 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 the, the assessment they're, they're getting is, is also subjective that someone else might have looked at. So, so the degree of subjectivity in these assessments is, is, is huge. And, and by having computational assistive tools, you're, you're sort of reducing that subjectivity at, at every point. And mm. uh, at, at sort of the end point, if, you, if, you, if you're making these assessments for, uh, for, for the physician who is uh, who's sort of incorporating all of these data streams, they can make their decisions in a much more informed way and eventually would lead to better, better patient care. I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> How, uh, I'm curious, what advice would you give to, you know, medical students or like, you know, early stage physicians or you just, you just physicians in general, if they are like wanted to get involved in this? this. So the, I, I think this is the right time. And, and there is sort of a wealth of opportunity of to, to get involved in, in AI research and at every institution, regardless of where where you are, right? So so I my advice sort of is is to think about during your training, think about what 
kind of assistive tools would you want to have? I mean, mm. if, you, if you look at tasks and say, well, I wish I didn't have to do that. This seems like a very, very um, intuitive thing that a machine could do for me. Um, and those are the best tasks that you want to automate, right? So uh, just by having the ability to not spend time on basic screening, looking at basic, basic images and having that assessment made on its own, you'd have so much more time to for research and other other interesting things that you would that, that, that a physician would want to do. So so think of the kind of assistive tools that you can build that would make life easier not only for yourself but for your colleagues, mm. right? And that will, that that has the possibility to lead to a lot of interesting research research projects. And I think this is a very, very interdisciplinary area. So machine learning researchers, computer vision scientists, uh, people in, in applied mathematics, they all have to work together with, with the clinicians to uh, sort of advance this, uh, advance this field. So because it's so inter, interdisciplinary, there's a huge amount of opportunity for, for, for med students or residents to, to get involved in this area. Mm. Um, another question I had is, uh, what, what would you say is your, your dream research project? <laughs> that's a that's an interesting uh, interesting question. So my my dream research project is to build an AI model for for human pathology. I I I think it's uh, we're at a point where where it's uh, it's possible for us to train a, a AI model for for pathology that that has ten thousand classes or even more, uh, given the availability of the data. And the only thing that's holding us back from doing that is the is the is the availability of uh, of, of data. Uh, we've seen consistently with computer vision um, data sets that data sets that, that reach 10,000 categories or classes or even more are able to make almost perfect predictions. Mm. I think that pathology is no, no different. Uh, I, I think we would have the ability to, to, to do that given enough, uh, enough data. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is that we would also be able to discover a lot more than what we, what we currently know. Um, yeah. Mm. That I, I keep thinking of, you know, kind of the, the historical pathologist of like the 1800s and the 1900s, where I feel like it was a dude sitting at his micro or, or a woman, man or a woman sitting at the microscope and, uh, you know, looking at like slides and then kind of realizing, oh, hey, I keep seeing like Reed Sternberg cells or, or I guess these bilobe nuclei. Oh, I'm going to call them after me. And then, oh, it turns out they were related to this pathology. No, 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 no. But it seems like maybe in the future, it'll be these models that discover these um these you know salient findings and i'm i'm curious one what did they get named after <laughs> and then two um i don't i actually my second class i'm not even sure i just i'm just can't even fathom what that future would be like where you know medical discoveries are made by models and not by us so i think that the the discoveries would still be made by humans at least for the foreseeable future the modeling would be sort of an assistant uh, mm. helping you make these discoveries, right? So I, I, I think the model is, is going to shorten the time that it would take. Um, like, let's say you're, you're, a, you're a pathologist and you're looking at all these, um, all these biopsies and you find a really common trend among a small group of patients. And you'll say, well, maybe if I go back in history, I'll also continue to find this trend because this subtype might have existed for a very long time. I just did not know that it was there. 
that's probably true. And this has been the case for a number of different diseases. And, 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 and what you would need to do is go and manually examine all these slides. Let's say you have that hunch. Now you can use computational tools to mm. go back. And if, you're, if your large repository or database is already scanned, you can, you can comb through it in a much more efficient way mm -hmm. and establish that, okay, this is a particular morphologic marker. This, this corresponds with a certain kind of a, kind of a prognosis and, and, and that would lead to, lead to discovery. I will, we'll see, I think, I think this is a very exciting area for AI-driven uh, prognostic marker discovery, AI-driven biomarker discovery in general. And I think over the next few years, this would be a very, very hot topic where new disease models, new subtypes would be, would be discovered by, uh, by computational assistance, yeah. Yeah, that's so exciting. Wow. Um, these are these are some closing questions that we give to every guest, but uh, one mm -hmm. of them would be, uh, what advice would you give to yourself in your 20s? <laughs> so I, I, I would uh, tell myself to, to study more, uh, more mathematics and more, mm. uh, more, more, more basic, basic math. So I had, I had to do a lot of um, self-learning when, when, when I, when I got started with, uh, with some of these, uh, some of these tools. Yeah. So I, I, I think that um, if you're if you're a med student um, and and you're just beginning to learn these, I think I, I, I think it is worth going back to fundamentals, learning more about basic machine learning, and then mm. moving into into deep learning. If you go directly into deep learning, there it's easier. It's uh, it's, it's very easy to get started these days. High school interns in my lab are 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 training all these deep models. Which oh is, my god which is great, but I think having some fundamental understanding and the history of machine learning and how it evolved, how, it, how did deep learning sort of come about um, is, uh, is very valuable, yeah. Mm. Um, this is also just a question that I'm curious about in general. Uh, I saw that you did your PhD in Japan. Yeah. I did in Okinawa, PhD. huh? Yeah. That's so, so cool. It was a, uh, it was an adventure, <laughs> adventure for me. I was, I was planning on doing my PhD in uh, the University of Michigan in, uh, in Ann Arbor, um, and this uh, this cool opportunity opened up, and I visited, and I fell in love with the place, and just really enjoyed uh, the the diversity. I really enjoyed the, the 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 thinking of the institution. It was very, mm. very uh, international. There were faculty from all over the place, and uh, so interdisciplinary. I might never have worked in medical machine learning, and might still be working in electrical engineering if I uh, if I did not go there. So so yeah. Oh, you started out in electrical engineering. Yeah, I started out in electrical engineering. Wow. So, so uh, um, I, I I I think that uh, it shaped my career quite a lot, uh, and I really enjoyed my time living in living in Japan and Okinawa. I was just curious. <laughs> and I saw you spent some time in Singapore too. Yeah, I, I worked in Singapore uh, for a year before starting my PhD. Wow. And where were you before that? So I'm from Pakistan. I did my undergrad there. Yeah. Oh, cool. Wow, you're Mr. Worldwide. <laughs> That's awesome. Where, where has been your favorite stop so far? 
So I, um, I, I lived in Baltimore before moving to Boston. Um, uh, me and my wife really love living in Boston. I think, <laughs> I think it's just home now. So, so we really enjoy living here. Um, we also really enjoyed living in, uh, living in Baltimore. Uh, I was at Johns Hopkins and my, my wife used to work in DC. So, so yeah. Mm. Uh, is there, is there anything that you'd like to close with or, you know, like to tell our listeners? Um, I, I would say that uh, this is a very, very exciting area. I think that there's a huge opportunity for, for people to, to, to get involved. Um, and it's also a very impactful area. So, so what you do in medical machine learning has, uh, has quite a lot of uh, impact. So uh, I, I think that going forward, we're, we, we have, we're beginning to learn that these models, the AI models in general are very, very uh, predictive of, of tasks that humans are typically capable of doing as well as tasks that our humans are not capable of, of doing. And, I think going forward, we, we want to start besides just expanding these models, besides just sort of uh, growing the arsenal of tools that we're building using artificial intelligence. We also need to investigate their limitations, the biases mm. that exist in these, in these tools and methods and how can we develop better methods that are, as I said, more equitable and, and would, would be applicable to all uh, all patients and, and scenarios. Um, and uh, yeah, besides that, I'd, I'd, I'd say that if, if you're a PhD student finishing your, your PhD and my lab is looking for a lot of postdocs, so. Oh, nice. Please consider applying. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll be sure to include that too in the description. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Mahmoud. Um, I, I hope that one day, years from now, maybe you'll have a pathological finding named after you you know maybe there'll be like the the, the Faisal Mahmood body maybe <laughs> thank you so much for having me thanks